Welcome to The Sugar Science. I'm Monica Wesley, your host, and I have the really distinct pleasure of speaking with Ed Boyden, PhD, and I'm going to list off his qualifications, uh, and there's a number of them, so buckle up. He is the Y. Eva Tan Professor in Neurotechnology at MIT, um, in the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, in the McGovern Institute. He's a professor at the Departments of Brain and Cognitive Science, Sciences, Media Arts and Sciences, and Biological Engineering. He's the co-director um, of the MIT Center for Bio Neurobiological Engineering. He's a member of the MIT Center for Environmental Health Sciences, Computational and Systems Biology Initiative, and the Koch Institute. And he's the leader of the Synthetic Neurobiology Group at MIT. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Annika. We first spotted you basically uh, when Katerina Voltz uh, at Ocomzi Razor tweeted about your new imaging technology in late November. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your lab is interested in and this new paper and the tool it has revealed? Sure. Well, my group has as our overarching theme, how do we understand complex biological systems, such as the brain, but of course, almost everything is so complicated. You know, most, <laughs> most diseases we can't cure, you know, if, uh, you know, infectious disease, you know, everybody's excited about the COVID vaccine right now. There's been advances, but brain diseases, metabolic conditions, you know, a lot of the, the conditions of the body that cause suffering, we cannot help the way we want. And so um, the hypothesis that we put forth was, well, what if we had better tools for seeing what's going on, for mapping what's happening, and for controlling what's happening? We could help the scientific community understand the nature of a disease, and that might help find better targets or ways to treat them, or maybe even cure them. Agreed. So, uh, we've developed a series of tools, uh, optogenetics, a way of controlling the brain with light, expansion microscopy, a way of taking biospecimens and physically making them grow until they're very large, so you can image nanoscale things on regular microscopes. And most recently, we've been getting into live imaging. Can we understand how cellular physiology in real time is evolving? You know, the genome has, what, 30,000 genes in the human genome. How do all those gene products interact to mediate life? It's one of the great mysteries of our time. It is. Um, yeah, and so those those are big, big questions. And I see, you know, you have a number of papers coming out of your lab that are addressing uh, many of these questions on multiple fronts. But if we let's talk about the, you know, the paper that you recently um, that recently came out. Your two. Uh, the two orders, uh, you know, first authors, Shannon L. Johnson and uh, Chang, uh, Chang Yang Lingyu. Mm hope -hmm. I got those right. Um, spatial multiplexing of fluorescent reporters for imaging signaling network dynamics. That came out of Cell Resource in uh, December 10th. And, and can you tell us a little bit about that paper? Sure. Yes, this is work that was led by a fantastic graduate student in the group, Shannon Johnson, and a great postdoc in the group, Chang Yang Lingyu. The two of them are the co-first authors of this and, and deserve credit for, for making this new, this new avenue of research possible. The basic idea that we wanted to solve was, you know, if there are 30,000 genes in the genome and they're on and they're doing different things, calcium channels, letting calcium ions into a cell, kinases that are phosphorylating targets, you know, all sorts of signals going on inside a cell. And this cellular signaling, of course, is that the core of what it means to be a living thing, right? A cell will receive inputs, it'll generate outputs, and in between, kind of like a computer, there's all sorts of processing that occurs. 
Yeah. Except unlike a computer that a human designed, we don't yet know how all the parts work together. So the core idea here was, you know, for decades, people have been building fluorescent indicators. Basically, they take genes like uh, the green fluorescent protein from a jellyfish, and they stick it onto a sensor protein. And this thing will then glow when the thing that the sensor protein senses is there. So if calcium flows into a cell, you could take a calcium binding protein, fuse it to the green fluorescent protein, and then it'll blink or glow when calcium goes in. And people have made hundreds of these sensors that mostly based upon the green fluorescent protein, although more and more are made on a red protein from corals and other, um, other red proteins. Um, hundreds of these sensors have been made that sense all sorts of stuff kinases, messengers like cyclic AMP, messengers like calcium, and the list goes on and on. So what we wanted to do was to figure out, well, if you really care about how all these signals interact, you need to see many of them at once, right? If you only look at one signal, you won't know what's driving it. You don't know what's downstream of it. It's like a, there's a whole network of communication inside the cell. Yes. And we wanted to eavesdrop on that network. So if you're at the Boston Symphony, Symphony Orchestra, you want to be able to see the instruments that are playing and when they play. Yeah, so that's a metaphor that, that, um, that uh, we've used to sort of describe one of the things that we're trying to do. You know, a traditional way of imaging a biological system would be you put one of these sensors in and you see the cell blinking when the signal that the sensor detects is active. But that's like hearing only one instrument in the orchestra. What about all the other signals that are talking to each other? Or another analogy that I sometimes like is, you know, what if you're at a, in a crowded room and hearing a conversation between many people, but you can only hear one of the people talking. You won't understand what everybody is saying because you're only hearing a tiny part of it. Right. And if you are trying to understand a cell or to find a target to control a cell to repair it in a dysfunctional state, you kind of want to know how all the different parts are talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, it's funny because uh, I've spoken to a couple of um scientists in the field and, you know, what happens, you know, just to sort of shift focus, you, I know you study neurons, but, you know, our interest is the beta cell and islet cells. And um, it's almost like, you know, the beta cell in a normal person is functioning beautifully, but in type one diabetes and under autoimmune attack, you've got a very bad ballet. And wouldn't that be, um, wouldn't it be so interesting to be able to first visualize the control beta cell using your tools and then visualize what happens um, when this cell, this beta cell starts to undergo stress, like at point zero, you know, or as close to point zero as you could. It'd be so fascinating. And I guess my question is, do you think that your tools, um, now that they're out there, would these tools be, um, you know, useful in uh, asking those questions? Yeah, so the core innovation that uh, Shannon and Chen Yang uh, put forth is, you know, rather than having to make a, um, indicators of different colors that will measure different signals, what if we just put different indicators at different points inside a cell? Yeah. So this point might blink and broadcast calcium, and this point might blink and broadcast a message like a cyclic AMP, and this point might blink and broadcast a signal like serotonin. In other words, each point in the cell would tell you a different signal. You know, I think an analogy would be like, you know, I could try to, to, to broadcast signals with different colors, blue, green, and red, and I'm limited to about three colors probably. But if I have a cell with lots of different points, it could broadcast in theory, dozens or even hundreds of different things. So in this paper, we showed that we could see five different signals at once. 
um, which is still a small number, but more than you can measure currently if you had if you require every signal of a different color. Yeah. And so one of the hopes here is that we can use this technology, which we call spatial multiplexing or signaling reporter islands, because you put the reporters in little islands inside the cell. We can use it to eavesdrop on many parts of a network. So going back to your question, one of the ideas is, you know, suppose there is a, a disease state that you want to understand. There might be many signals that are all talking to each other. But if you're trying to invent a treatment, where in the network would you want to intervene for maximum effect? And of course, minimum side effects. Yeah. So if we could figure out where in the network is the hub, right? You know, it's like a hub and lots of spokes, like a bicycle wheel. You know, all the signals are talking to each other, but if we can find the center of the network, the part of the network that's most important, maybe we could try to target that. And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, neurons have very intricate signaling, uh, as, as you were mentioning, of course, uh, beta cells will have very intricate signaling within them as well. If you we look at all the ebb and flow of these signals during a healthy state or an unhealthy state, we can try to figure out exactly how the networks differ and then where in the network to intervene for maximum health benefit. That's kind of the idea that's emerging now. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, a, it's fascinating. And I think this tool is gonna to be so handy in multiple different um, biological areas. I do, you know, when you talk about your uh, SIRIs, the signaling um, reporter islands mm -hmm. um, and where you place them, can you place them within, um, you know, anywhere in the cell? Do they have to be certain distances from each other? Could you, for instance, could you put them inside the mitochondrial matrix? Could you put them inside the nucleus or does, do they have to live in the cytoplasm? And then could you put them, I mean, even inside of a, you know, hypothetically inside of a, um, an insulin granule? I mean, how, how, what's the placement of these things? Great question. So the way that these signaling reporter islands work right now is, you know, there are hundreds of fluorescent indicators out there. We can take a set of them and we fuse each one to a different pair of what are called self-assembling peptides, basically little Lego bricks that like to get together into a clump. Yeah. Now, what that means is currently these little clusters of reporters are randomly throughout the cell. And the goal that we had in mind was we want them to be, to be far enough apart that we can tell them apart. That dot is calcium that dot is protein kinase A or whatever you're trying to image. But we don't, want to be, we don't want them to be too far apart because if they're too far apart, we're missing out on the biology in between the dots, right? Yeah. We want to be close enough to sample the biology, but far enough apart that you could see them in a microscope. Now, the current version uh, is in the cytosol. It's not ending up in the mitochondria or in these organelles within the cell. But an interesting future direction is we know of so-called targeting motifs. These are little proteins that can ship a payload into the mitochondria or different organelles. Mm -hmm. and so one thought might be if we can collaborate with experts on these different organelles, we could maybe work together to see if we could um, insert these random points uh, of indicator in targeted subcellular compartments as well. But you know, one of our business models is we'll invent a technology platform, but then we collaborate with lots of experts on different scientific topics like mitochondria, or disease areas um, mm -hmm. like brain disease or metabolic disease or other classes of disease. And, and then we work together with them to try to optimize the tool for that purpose. And so- Yeah, I see that, that seems great. So just to clarify, so if you put a signal sequence on one of these, um, you could potentially target it to any place you wanted. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, like anything in, <laughs> in biology science, you don't really know for sure until you've done it because there could, you know, um, 
uh, maybe there's interference between one signal and another. But yeah. to be honest, I was pretty surprised by how modular the Siri architecture has been. We, tr we took a, you know, a bunch of different Western reporters and attached these self-assembly peptides to them. And the vast majority of them worked. Um, this is kind of rare, you know, protein engineering, you know, you get used to this idea that most of it's, you know, luck, right? You know, Francis Arnold won the Nobel Prize a couple of years back for inventing directed evolution, a way of evolving proteins to make them better for certain purposes. Um, but this idea that you could just take one building block and connect it to a second one and it would just work, we were pleasantly shocked to see that that was the case. Yeah. No, it is very, it, it is surprising, but I think it is, um, you know, I, I think it really has... Uh, the potential to sort of uh, um, really give new insight into how things are working, not just in neur neurons, but possibly in, inside the beta cell or other cells that populate the islet. So it's really cool. And, you know, um, we're hoping that um, we'll be able to connect you with some of um, the top researchers in the field of uh, beta cell biology and islet cell biology and maybe a conversation will evolve from there and hopefully that'll, you know, that'll go somewhere. Uh, the name of the game here, I guess, that we're playing at the Sugar Sciences, we're hoping to just help scientists connect so that uh, the research in the space will expedite. Well, that'd be wonderful, yeah. And as tool, develop tool developers, we're always looking to experts on different problems so that we can kind of work together, you know, think forwards from the technology and also backwards from the problem and where they collide, you know, so much of biomedicine is driven by serendipity. Can we engineer serendipity? You know, can we do on purpose what previous generations did, you know, often accidentally, but to great effect on human health. And uh, so, yeah, we, we love connecting with people. That's great. Do you want to just give a quick comment on what's next for you uh, in 2021? Where's your lab, uh, you know, working? What are they, what's, what's uh, coming up for you and your group? Absolutely. Well, in terms of the live imaging, we'd love to broaden the class of, of the spatially multiplex indicators to be a much larger family. Um, you already mentioned targeting to subcellular organelles. I would love to explore that. Um, we also want to get it working in in vivo. So um, all the experiments that we showed in the first paper were done in vitro, either cell cultures or um, acute brain slices. slices. So this is a very popular preparation in neuroscience where you cut acute slices of the brain so you can visualize it better. But um, in fields like learning and memory, you really want to watch what happens in a, a brain cell um, during behavior. And one of the big questions in neuroscience is how does a short-term change result in a long-term change? You know, for example, we all have memories from childhood, which they were encoded in our brain in a few seconds, but you know, now 10, 20, 30 years later, longer, we can you know, throughout our whole lifetime remember that. And this is a really big unsolved problem. What are the conditions through which a specific set of short-term signals becomes a set of long-term signals? And you could argue that this is not unique to the brain. All throughout the body, momentary changes result in long-lasting changes. And it's sort of a core meta question, you could say, in, in health. You know, how does short-term experience become long-term change. And that's one of the, you know, sort of killer apps, I hope, of our technology is that we could look at fast signals and slow signals and see how they relate. Yeah. And that, I think, is a direct, has a direct application to the immune system as well. What you're talking about there is like how, and of course, it to, in type 1 diabetes, um, it's all well and good to uh, when the immune attack, initial immune attack subsides, but we know the memory cells are still lurking in the in lymphatic nodes, you know, waiting for the next chance to attack. So 
how did they also establish memory? I mean, just we're really, I am going off on a little tangent here, but that's also a question that applies, that pertains to um, type one diabetes is, is, and other autoimmune diseases is that these cells, um, you know, they, they, these immune cells can in, in effect contain memories. So. Mm, yeah. Oh, there's so many analogies that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, molecularly fascinating between the immune system and memory in the brain. Yeah. And um, when I started graduate school um, in the late 1990s, uh, there was a burst of, of exploration of the genes that are involved with, with memory formation. And, and many of them have links to the immune system and other systems that encode long-term uh, changes. Uh, so it's, it's, it's you know, that's one of the big themes of biology is that systems are reused over and over again for different yeah. functions. Um, uh, and that's sort of at the core of, of, of understanding biology is being able to map these things out. Figure out which gets recycled when and where. <laughs> so. Well, it allows us to make sense of complexity, right? If we yeah. had to deal with every, you know, again, there's thousands of cell types in the body, tens of thousands of genes, who knows how many gene products, because of course, many of them come in different flavors or, or forms. And I think one of the core goals in the coming years is to start to see what, what are the patterns, you know? People often make the analogy between biological systems and computers, but of course, computers being designed by humans fulfill certain criteria, like they're robust and there are layers of, of abstraction, which let engineers ignore details so they can focus on what they want to do. Biology, we don't have that luxury. We have to see what's going on and then extract the meaning through, uh, uh, you know, new tools. And you asked, uh, you know, what, what I'm hoping to do in, in the coming year, also to integrate the informatics too. You know, once you get all this data, how do you analyze it for its meaning? And that's a big challenge, but, but one that's really exciting. And so we're talking to lots of computationally minded people as well, trying to understand, you know what, what if you could look at a zillion different signals? How do you understand which is the most important one for a given function? That's a really hard problem too. Yeah, it is a hard problem. But I have hope that um, with, you know, great groups like your own and others um, and collaborative endeavors, I think that the, a lot of these um, sort of long-term um, questions uh, will be maybe not cracked, but at least uh, understood on certain levels. And hopefully 2021 is going to bring us that because <laughs> I think 2020 has given us a uh, a lot of pause buttons on a lot of things. So now it would be great to sort of um, move through the rest of this pandemic and get back into laboratory and start figuring some of these things out. <laughs> so I well, we just, share all the tools very freely. So we always want to help people. Yeah, that's, that's, I have high hopes as well that maybe we can help people solve some, some problems or at least make some advances. So. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for talking to us. And I, and, um, you know, I will have your contact uh, information available should any of the scientists who are listening like to reach out and uh, start a conversation. Thank you again. Great. Always eager to chat. Thanks so much.